0: May the power of thy mercy accompany them everywhere and protect them from the devil's traps and snares, which are continually being set for the souls of priests. May the power of thy mercy, O Lord, shatter and bring to naught all that might tarnish the sanctity of priests. For thou canst do all things. Amen. Virgin Most Powerful, pray for us. Virgin Most Powerful Radio, sharing the gospel with clarity and charity. That pass by the way, attend and see if there be any sorrow like to my sorrow. Words from uh, the Holy Scripture, Lamentations 1, verse 12. The church applies those words to the Blessed Virgin Mary. Today is the octave of the Nativity of Mary, and it is celebrated as the feast, the memorial of her seven sorrows. Uh, Also, so we are uh, at eight days after a Marian feast from last week. Also, there was a Marian feast in between, on the 12th. Uh, There's a Marian feast. We're going to be talking about that a little later in the program. Also, uh, what I hope to be our final installment on Rome's official guidelines for putting an end to liturgical abuse in the Novus Ordo Mise. But first, going to look at the uh, gospel from the traditional Latin Mass of this uh, week's Sunday, the 16th after Pentecost. We began uh, our week from... uh, reading from Luke 14, 1 through 11. And of course, I'm not going to be reading Latin. I'm reading uh, from the New Catholic Bible version that uh, I have been uh, exploring lately. <clears throat> and so, on one Sabbath, Jesus went to dine at the home of a prominent Pharisee, and the people were watching him closely. In front of him, there was a man suffering from dropsy, and Jesus asked the lawyers and the Pharisees, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? When they offered no reply, he took the man, healed him, and sent him on his way. Then he said to them, If one of you has a son or an ox that has fallen into a well, will you not immediately pull him out on the Sabbath day? And they were unable to give him any answer. And when he noticed that the, how the guests were securing places of honor, he told them a parable. When you have been invited by someone to attend a wedding banquet, do not sit down in the place of honor, In case someone who is is more distinguished than you may have been invited, and then the host who invited both of you may approach you and say, Give this man your place. Then you will be embarrassed as you proceed to sit in the lowest place. Rather, when you are invited, proceed to sit in the lowest place, so that when your host arrives, he will say to you, Friend, move up to a higher place. Then you will be honored in the presence of all your fellow guests. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself. <clears throat> Pardon me. And the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Thus far, the words of the Holy Gospel. Apologize. I, I'm a little verklempt, and I'm going to tell you why after uh, a little clogged up here. Well, we'll talk about that later. But in this Gospel, St. Luke brings together different themes in the context of a banquet, of a, of a dinner held by uh, this Pharisee. You know, the Jews thought of the kingdom of God in terms of a gathering of people at a heavenly banquet. This is a metaphor that our Lord employs very often. Uh, and for St. Luke, the value of this particular banquet is as an announcement and as a symbol. Jesus has had the honor of being invited to dine on the Sabbath, no less, with a group of Pharisees who, of course, prided themselves on their piety and on their religious knowledge. And at this point in his ministry, our Lord is under constant surveillance. They're watching him like a hawk. You know, earlier in in chapter 7 of Luke's Gospel, he had been invited to a Pharisee's home for a discussion. This time, a prominent Pharisee has invited him Uh, to this banquet where there are lots of people, but in in hopes of trapping him into saying or doing something uh, for which they can condemn him, hopefully even uh, have him be arrested. Now, the fact that Jesus accepted the invitation shows us that he wasn't afraid to face the Pharisees, even though he had himself publicly denounced them on several occasions, and even though he knew why they had really invited him. And although the Pharisees are looking to accuse our Lord of some impropriety, Jesus doesn't mind his P's and Q's. But rather, it seems like he goes out of his way to provoke them. So rather than just being, you know, uh, polite company, Jesus performs a miraculous healing. And like all of his miracles, it's, it's a sign of the salvation that he brings to the world. But he doesn't, in the context of a question, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? You know, and he does... he. he he performs a miracle on the Sabbath to show that religion is meant to set us free and that the Sabbath is meant to, to bear witness to that reality. You know, and, and this is one of five episodes uh, where, uh, in Luke's Gospel where Jesus heals on the Sabbath. And this time he heals a man of the dropsy. And if you don't know what that refers to, that's an archaic name for uh, a medical condition called edema. That's, uh, um, edema is a swelling caused by, you know, fluid being retained in the body. I remember my dad, God rest his soul, uh, at, was hospitalized at one point uh, with congestive heart failure. And the edema in his uh, lower legs and his ankles and feet was just was so um, just, you know, uh, uh, great that, uh, I mean, it, it, the, the skin on his uh, lower legs was stretched to the point where it couldn't stretch anymore. And it actually... Started to tear and weep this fluid, you know, his feet and his legs were so swollen So here's a man with dropsy and and uh, it doesn't say it's it's normally uh, in those, you know uh, lower extremities there, but but uh, Dropsy can can uh, edema can, you know, uh, happen in any part of your body So you have this man who's all swollen with edema and Jesus heals him miraculously boom gone and uh, you know, I dare say that in this case that that man's swollen body was, you know, like a physical representation of the Pharisees' swollen heads. You know, here he's asking these religious experts who are so puffed up with pride, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? And they're afraid to answer. Now, after schooling the Pharisees on the nature of doing good on the Sabbath, Jesus then advises them about not rushing for the best seat at a banquet. And, you know, his reflections could be, could be, Nothing more than the simple counsels of uh, worldly wisdom. But the parable, he tells, offers the uh, the proud Pharisees a lesson in humility, that greatness is measured by concern for others and a modest estimation of one's self. And that's, you know, you can see that again in Luke chapter 18, verse 14, or in uh, uh, the letter of James 4, 6, or 1 Peter 5, 6, um, you know... Greatness is cons- measured by concern for others and a modest estimation of oneself, and that humility holds first place I- amongst the values of the kingdom of God, and that it, contrary to the values of the world. And, you know, people today, I, we're just as eager as ever to raise our social status, whether it's by mingling with the right people, or, you know, wearing the right clothes, or, of course, uh, holding the right opinions, but, but who are we trying to impress, Jesus teaches that it's wrong to presume that your position, uh, social or otherwise, will automatically win the favor of God. For for us, this means that, that rather looking for prestige, we should look for a place to serve. You know, our Lord, our Lord Himself teaches that He will look favorably on works of mercy come the last judgment. And in verses twelve through fourteen of this gospel that follow the passage that we just read, Jesus turns to the host and says. When you host a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your wealthy neighbors, lest they invite you back and thus repay you. Rather, when you hold a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. Then uh, indeed will you be blessed, because they have no way to repay you. But you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. You know, whatever you did to one of these little ones, you did for me. This is what our Lord is saying in so many words. So service is more important than status in the kingdom of God. And if God wants us to serve at at some higher scale than we are currently, he will surely invite us to take a higher place. You know, the question for us is, do we humble ourselves? I mean, some people, of course, try and give the impression of humility, uh, but but in order to manipulate other people. Others think that uh, humility consists of heaping opprobrium upon themselves, but in the words of C.S. Lewis, true humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. Truly humble people know that they should only compare themselves to our Lord. Now, he's the mirror with which you, you hold up your own reflection to see how it measures up. That's the, the imitation of Christ, that's what it's all about. Because by doing so, you come to recognize your sinfulness and understand your limitations. So humility isn't, isn't self-degradation, It's a realistic self-assessment and a readiness to serve, and we strengthen our humility by performing actions that will humble us by not boasting, by letting others do most of the talking, that sort of thing. Now, this past Sunday, the 12th, was um, the Feast of the Holy Name of Mary, which falls between the Nativity of Mary on the 8th of September and the Octave, which is today, the 15th, uh, the uh, Solemnity, or... uh, Memorial, rather, of the seven sorrows. So Mary, of course, is the exemplar par excellence of holiness and humility, which is so beautifully expressed in, in that uh, great canticle, the Magnificat, the words of which were inspired by the Holy Spirit. My soul proclaims the greatness of the Lord, etc. But, you know, once upon a time, there was a, a, a cathedral, a great cathedral in Germany where the devotion to Our Lady was very important and her feasts were celebrated with great pomp and 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 ceremony. And on the Feast of the Immaculate Conception, it was their custom for the choir to sing the Magnificat. And in one year, the choir master, who had a wonderful voice, uh, decided he was going to sing it solo, which he did, and it was beautiful. But uh, that night, the Blessed Virgin appeared to him and said, why was the Magnificat not sung uh, at the feast this year? Why why was it not sung in my honor as it has been for centuries? And he said, you know, beg your pardon, my lady, it was sung. I sang it myself, personally. And she replied and said, you only wish to glorify yourself. You sang the hymn out of pride and not one note of it reached heaven. So he who exalts himself will be humbled. And on on the other side, you've got uh, a story of the the Renaissance painter, Peter Paul Rubens, who uh, uh, saw a painting and wanted to know who painted it. Uh, It was in a monastery and the prior told him, you know, he wants to remain anonymous and he went spread far and wide the beauty of his painting well the prior was the one who painted it and he who humbles himself then will be exalted okay lots more on the other side we'll be right back with uh no nonsense catholic here on virgin most powerful radio back to No Nonsense Catholic. Hey, a final word on uh, he who exalts himself will be humble and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Um, You know, I told the the story of the choir master who sang the Magnificat solo even though the tradition was for the choir to sing it and how Mary told him that uh, it didn't reach heaven. It didn't really do her honor because he sang it for himself. And then how Peter Paul Rubens was actually traveling in Spain and went to a monastery and saw a beautiful painting hanging there. And he asked uh, who the painter was, and uh, the, the prior told him he wanted to remain anonymous, and, and none of the monks would tell him and, But then he went around the world telling people about how great this painting is, and as it turns out, it was the prior himself who painted it, and so his work was exalted because it was offered to God and, and not for his own um, you know his own pride or popularity. So the formula is simple: think of yourself less. Think more of others, think the most of God. Okay, now today is the 15th of September, and that means it is the memorial of the Seven Sorrows of Mary. It's the traditional octave of last week's Marian feast, the Nativity of Mary on the 8th of September. And um, we're going to be talking about the Seven Sorrows a bit later, but this last Sunday, the 12th, was also a Marian feast. Uh, namely, and no pun intended, the holy name of Mary. So uh, how did this feast day come about, and why did the Church put it smack dab in between a pair of other Marian feasts? Um, Legitimate questions. Before we go into it, I I, I do want to mention that uh, Saturday, of course, was the 11th of September, and this year marked the 20th anniversary, if you will, of the terrorist attacks on the Two Towers and the Pentagon. And so, you know, we offered our family rosary uh, for the souls or opposed of the souls that were lost that day and for their surviving family and friends, for our country, for our military, many of whom are still deployed around the world and in harm's way. Um, and uh, the holy name of Mary, which fell, falls on the 12th, is actually connected in a way. Um, and if you're wondering why they didn't celebrate holy name of Mary at your parish yesterday, It's because it isn't a major feast. So since it fell on a Sunday this year, the Sunday uh, liturgy took precedence. So that's why if you went to the uh, uh, Novus Ordo Mass, it was the, I think, the 24th Sunday uh, of ordinary time. Or if you were at the traditional Mass, it's 16th Sunday after Pentecost and not uh, celebrated as the Holy Day of Mary. But it it, it still was the Holy Day of Mary, though. Uh, And it is a feast that goes back only about 500 years. It's great being Catholic when you can say only 500 years. Uh, it goes back about 500 years, to the year uh 1513 and it was uh given a, a proper office actually on the 15th of September originally so uh today uh was holy name of mary before it was uh, seven sorrows um the uh over the years the permission to celebrate the feast first it was just local in spain uh and then permission was granted to various religious orders and then various uh in various countries Pope Innocent XI extended the Feast of the Holy Name of Mary to the Universal Church after the Battle of Vienna in 1638. So after 1638, Holy Name of Mary was celebrated everywhere in the church. And um, it was originally celebrated, it was, you know, on the liturgical calendar, to be celebrated on the Sunday after the Nativity of Mary, which coincidentally this year it was. Um, but then it was Pope St. Pius X who decreed that Holy Name of Mary should each year be celebrated on the 12th of September, because that is the historical date of the Battle of Vienna. And that's what I wanted to kind of talk about. Uh, 1638, this is uh, 67 years or so, after the Battle of Lepanto, where the uh, Muslim Turkish fleet was uh, defeated by Don John of Austria and the the Holy League, right? Uh, And uh, occasioned the, the Feast of Our Lady of Victory on the 7th of October. Because it was October 7, 1571 when they won that great battle. So this is, you know, years later, the Ottoman Turks have, you know, uh, um, built themselves up. They still are are hoping to um, take over Europe. They're still, uh, you know, interested in in conquest. And so um, they marched in 1638 um, to the uh, capital of Vienna, capital of Austria, Holy Roman Empire. So they decided this time to invade by land, and Austria or Vienna was the key. So uh, fortunately for the Viennese, Pope Pius XI had just brokered an alliance between the Holy Roman Empire and the uh, uh, Kingdom of of Poland-Lithuania, which was also, you know, because they were fighting against uh, Islam as well. And when it became known that something like 300,000 Turks were marching on uh, the imperial capital of Vienna, the Pope ordered, what did he do? His first reaction was to order uh, that rosaries be recited in all the churches and all the religious houses in Rome and and throughout the Holy Roman Empire, that they would pray the rosary. And then, um, you know, the, the uh, situation, of course, was so dangerous that Emperor Leopold I and the imperial court actually left Vienna. They went west to uh, the city of Passau in Bavaria because of the advancing uh, army. On um, Now, the... Uh, On the 15th of August, which is the Feast of the Assumption in that year, Jan Sobieski III, who was king of uh, Poland, uh, the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, he assisted at Holy Mass at the Shrine of Our Lady of Czestochowa. He received Holy Communion and also received uh, from the hands of a Pauline monk the sword of his heroic great-grandfather stanislaus which bore the inscription i am a slave of mary so Bieski was going to the relief of vienna so uh, he departed czechua czechowa uh, to krakow I'm, I'm sorry for any polish listeners <laughs> i apologize for my for my terrible pronunciation uh, but anyway he headed to krakow where his commanders from the entire nation were gathering stopping along the way at the various marian sanctuaries to pray for divine assistance And then once in Krakow, he went to seven churches there to pray to Our Lady uh, for victory. And then on the 15th, on the Feast of the Ascension, uh, he mounted his charger and led the way to Vienna. Now, meanwhile, the the Turks have been um, laying siege to Vienna this whole time, and they're undermining the walls, right? So they're digging underneath to plant explosives to try and uh, blow the wall down. And they actually managed to uh, uh, make a breach in the wall, and uh, uh, it was hastily shorn up by the Viennese, but their f- final assault uh, of the Mohammedan army was imminent. And uh, the, the, the Viennese offered special devotion to Our Lady of Help of Christians, whose famous painting um, hangs there, and which would become the symbol of their victory. And uh, finally, on the 12th of September, after nearly a month of forced marching from August 15, um, the Polish forces appeared on the crest of the Kallenberg, which is a uh, kind of a forest-covered mountain that overlooks Vienna. Uh, The Polish knights and the foot soldiers, as they advanced, they sang a hymn to Mary, the Bugorodska. I apologize again for the pronunciation, but it means Mother of God. And the battle lasted for 12 hours. um, uh, The forces under Sobieski retaking all of the outlying villages around Vienna and finally the city itself. And the charge, the final charge, of the Polish winged hussars. Right? They were these knights that, that wore um, these big frames with, with uh, feathers on them. You know, they look like angels with these giant wings, you know, the winged hussars, uh, and their allies from the Holy Roman Empire. Um, it was actually the largest cavalry charge in history, something like 18,000 mounted knights. And the defenders uh, took the opportunity to sally forth from the city and join the fight. Uh, and and the Muslim force, which was superior in numbers, but you know what? That final charge, uh, and then combined with uh, with uh, the, the the defenders sallying forth from the city, you know, heavy cavalry, so hard to stand up against. And the Turks, they panicked. They just they they didn't just raise the siege. They they cut and run. <laughs> you know, and um, uh, in fact, so precipitous was the flight of the Muslim attackers that uh, they actually left behind virtually all of their stores and their baggage, their tents and everything. They just, they just ran. So tangentially, actually, this had a, a kind of significant cultural impact um, on the West because among those abandoned stores, the, the Viennese discovered coffee. And as you may know, uh, the Viennese are avid coffee drinkers, and they're justly famous for and remain world famous for their coffee houses. So no Siege of Vienna, I guess, no Starbucks. So that's, you know, something else to be thankful for. More to the point, though, (laughs) in thanksgiving for this great victory, which was, you know, took all of a day and was only achieved through the powerful intercession of the Mother of God, Pope Innocent XI extended the Feast of the Holy Name of Mary, like I said, throughout the Universal Church. And uh, it was removed, actually, from the liturgical calendar for a while after the imposition of the New Order of the Mass but uh, it was promptly reinstated after the election of our first Polish Pope. (laughs) More recently, uh, our Lord Jesus Christ, speaking of Poland, was officially crowned King of Poland. That's happened back in November 2016. So uh, so for the Feast of the Holy Name of Mary, my family, which is definitely not Polish, um, we chose to celebrate uh, this feast this year in uh, kind of a grand medieval style. So we started off by assisting at the traditional Latin Mass, and then uh, we enjoyed a feast and watched demonstrations of falconry and dressage and a jousting tournament, courtesy of the folks at uh, Medieval Times in Buena Park, and uh, a splendid time was had by all. So uh, that's the holy name of Mary. Now today's uh, memorial is of a more somber nature, the uh, Seven Sorrows of Mary. Mater Dolorosa, the Mother of Sorrows, Our Lady of Sorrows, Our Lady of Dolores. These are some of the titles associated with Mary and today's memorial. You know, the tradition of the church has singled out seven of the sorrowful episodes um, in Our Lady's life for a special devotion. And we're going to take a look at those quickly and then move on to our uh, our final examination of the uh, Novus Ordo Mise and the way that the Church has uh, uh, told us that we should deal with liturgical abuse of that rite of the Mass. But uh, first, the seven sorrows. Um, and the seven sorrows of Mary, um, it's a devotion. A lot of people um, you would name the sorrow and, and, and pray a Hail Mary for each one. Some people just meditate kind of on the sorrows. It is um, those seven sorrows that I'm about to uh, to uh, read off here, were in fact, or are, do in fact, form the basis of what's known as the Servite Rosary or the Chaplet of the Seven Sorrows, where you pray on Our Father and seven Hail Marys for each one of the uh, uh, sorrows, and they sell special chaplets, special strings of beads just for that uh, for that devotion. But the first is the prophecy of Simeon, and you know uh, when you see pictures of Our Lady of Sorrows. She's most often depicted with seven swords or seven long daggers in her heart. There's a number of depictions. I think I, probably my uh, my favorite is a, a picture. She's like Our Lady the Help of Christians, wearing that kind of tall crown, and you know, in in all enrobed, and her uh, heart is on the exterior, and there's these seven kind of long daggers that are entering into her heart, and and that imagery comes from the first of her sorrows, the prophecy of Simeon, which we read about in um, the book of Luke, chapter 2. So we're going to talk about that, we're going to talk about the liturgy, and we're going to talk about other stuff, too, uh, when we come back with lots more No-Nonsense Catholic, right here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. I'm Matthew Arnold, great to have you with us. Stick around, and we'll be right back after these messages. Welcome back uh, to No Nonsense Catholic. talking about the seven sorrows of Mary, since today, 15 September, is the uh, memorial of the seven sorrows. And I mentioned that it takes its name, this devotion, from the first of the sorrows, which is the prophecy of Simeon. We read about this in uh, Luke chapter 2. The child's father and mother marveled at what was being said about him. Then Simeon blessed them. This is the presentation. And said to Mary, his mother, this child is destined for the fall and the rise of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be opposed so that the secret thoughts of many will be revealed and you yourself, a sword will pierce. And the second is the flight into Egypt. Again, we read about this in Luke chapter two, after the wise men had left, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and instructed him, arise, Take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt. Remain there until I tell you, for Herod seeks the child to kill him. Number three is the loss of the child Jesus in the temple in Jerusalem. And this is from uh, Luke 2 also. When Jesus was 12 years old, they made the journey as usual for the feast. and When the days of the feast were over and they set off for home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents were not aware of this. Assuming that he was somewhere in the group of travelers, they journeyed for a day. Then they started to look for him among their relatives and friends. But when they failed to find him, they returned to Jerusalem to search for him. So finding him in the temple is one of the joys of Mary, as you might imagine. But it's the loss of Jesus and their anxiety. As she said, we've we've been searching for you um, with anxiety. We have sought thee sorrowing, right? Um, That makes it one of her sorrows. Number four is... Uh, The Mary and Jesus, they're meeting on the way of the cross. Now, sometimes you'll see um, devotional cards and whatnot for the seven sorrows, and it'll say that that's not in the scripture, and perhaps explicitly not. But uh, we're going to take a look at these next sorrows and the biblical uh, account and see if maybe that's uh, not entirely true. It says in Luke um, 23, 27, A large number of people followed Jesus, among them many women who were mourning and lamenting over him. All right, so that uh, presumably would include um, Mary and other of the holy women who came with him from Galilee as well, Uh, because, you know, the the very next of the um, seven sorrows, number five, is the crucifixion, where we read in John 19, standing near the cross of Jesus where his mother and his mother's sister Mary, of uh, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When And so, uh, the, the, how did they get there? Presumably it's because they were walking along the way of the cross. They were, they were doing the Via Dolorosa along with our Lord. Uh, when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing beside her, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. So, uh, to watch her son be crucified. This is... Now we're getting to that sword of sorrow that would pierce her heart. The number six is Jesus is taken down from the cross again. We'll see this in the scriptures in Matthew 27, verses 57 and 8. 58, when evening came, there arrived a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who had himself become a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and requested the body of Jesus. So Pilate ordered that it be handed over to him. Now, we don't know for a fact that... um, or I, 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 let me take that back. We do not know from Scripture that um, Jesus was placed in the arms of his Blessed Mother, but that is, of course, uh, the tradition of the Church, and that is um, pieta, pity, is the uh, uh, name given to all of the artistic representations of our Blessed Mother holding the broken and dead body of our Lord, You know, from the Pieta in the Vatican that was done by, you know, Michelangelo to the many paintings and and statues and so forth that are all over the world. And, you know, I I think probably one of the most moving moments in Mel Gibson's passion of the Christ is after the crucifixion when they've taken his body down and he starts on the face of Mary and, and slowly pulls out and you see that scene and it's very, very, very moving. Um, and then we have the burial of Joseph, or, or Jesus, rather, by Joseph of Arimathea, who went to Pilate and requested the body of Jesus. This is Luke chapter 23, uh, 53 through 55. Joseph of Arimathea went to Pilate and requested the body of Jesus. Then he took it down, wrapped it in a linen shroud, uh, presumably the shroud of Turin, and laid him in a tomb that had been hewed out of rock and which, in which no one had ever been interred. It was the day of preparation, and the Sabbath was about to begin. The women who had accompanied Jesus from Galilee followed Joseph. Okay, that would be these women just named, the Blessed Virgin, Mary of Magdala, and uh, Mary, the wife of Clopas. Uh, they saw the tomb. They accompanied uh, Joseph, they followed Joseph, then they saw the tomb and how his body was laid in it. So that is the seventh of the seven sorrows of Mary that we honor, especially Today on the memorial of the seven sorrows, you know, uh, I mentioned the the image of the seven sorrows with the uh, long knives or daggers that pierce her heart, um, and and the meditation of the uh, you know people that meditate on the sorrows or uh, on the uh, the chaplet, the Servite uh, rosary, it's called. I actually did for Promultis Media a uh, audio CD that you can get at your local Catholic bookstore or. You can go online to promultismedia.com, promultis, that's for many in Latin, promultismedia.com and uh, order it there. Or you just go to matthewarnold.org and there's a link to Promultis Media and you can follow it there if you're interested. Or it's available via formed.org also. So if you have a Formed subscription, you can check it out today uh, because it has a little history <clears throat> and various um, devotions to Our Lady, um, Our Sorrowful Mother and the seven sorrows of Mary. Um, The sequence for today's memorial in in the Novus Ordo Mass, which I was uh, happy to discover, is the Stabat Mater, uh, which is traditionally sung at the Stations of the Cross. At the cross, her station keeping, stood the mournful mother weeping, close to Jesus to the last. Through her heart, his sorrow sharing, all his bitter anguish bearing, now at length the sword has passed. Uh, and etc. Now, for the last few weeks, um, switching gears, we have devoted a segment or two to correcting liturgical abuses in the new order of the Mass. In uh, Pope Francis's now infamous motu proprio *Traditionis Custodes*, which calls uh, almost unbelievably for the eventual elimination of the traditional Latin Mass, he also said, and that's another talk for another time. Uh, He also said that he is saddened by, and in fact deplores his word, liturgical abuse of the new mass. And he says to his brother bishops, I ask you to be vigilant in ensuring that every liturgy be celebrated with decorum and fidelity to the liturgical books promulgated after Vatican II and without eccentricities that can become uh, abuses and uh, that the priests and seminarians need to be formed in faithful observance of the prescription of the missal. And the liturgical books in which is reflected the reform of Vatican II. Now, if we take the Pope at his word, surely he must be in favor of finally implementing the instruction from the Congregation of the Doctrine of Worship and the Sacraments promulgated by St. John Paul II, whom he specifically invokes in this context. And that document, of course, we've been talking about for weeks now is Redemptionis Sacramentum, which says that liturgical abuses are harmful and must cease and that the Church has received this liturgy, quote, from apostolic and unbroken tradition, which is the Church's task to transmit faithfully and carefully to future generations. So we've already talked about the introductory rite and the uh, liturgy of the Word. <coughs> Pardon me, we started with the um, liturgy of the Eucharist last week uh, with um, looking at the uh, offertory. And I want to continue now to the Eucharistic Prayer. This is the heart of the Mass. This is kind of where the rubber meets the road. And um, to begin with, of course, the, the Eucharist. There was only one Eucharistic Prayer. I think there's something like nine now, but there are four of them that uh, um, came at the the promulgation of the new order of the Mass. Two of which are pretty much are the only ones you ever hear. Uh, the first is the Roman Canon. I mean, that's the old quote-unquote Eucharistic Prayer. This has been around you know, since St. Peter, apparently, uh, or arguably, and also Eucharistic prayer number two, which is the probably the most often used, and, you know, not to, with all due respect, probably just because it's the shortest, right? It's the one that the, the priests default to, uh, especially for daily Mass. So, um, you know, the, the Eucharistic prayer is the center, it's the high point of the Mass. That's where Christ is made present for us, you know, uh, in his passion, his death, and resurrection, uh, you know, in the consecration, and during this uh, the Eucharistic prayer, uh, the whole congregation joins Christ or joins the priest in the person of Christ in acknowledging the works of God and offering the sacrifice to the Father. So um, I want to just jump to the consecration because again, that's that's the uh, that's the place where the priest changes the bread and wine into the sacred body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, after the consecration of the host, he holds the host aloft, right? And then same after the consecration of the wine, when it becomes the precious blood, he holds up the chalice. And people offer their private prayers at that time. Uh, My Lord and my God, Eternal Father, I offer you the precious blood of Jesus uh, for the sanctification of, you know, my soul and and for the supplication uh, for the holy souls of purgatory and for the wants of Holy Church, right? Right. which brings us then to the memorial acclamation now in the traditional rite the memorial acclamation uh, the mystery mysterium fide, the mystery of faith uh, is the word that the priest uses and that was part of the consecration and you know particularly uh, the consecration of the chalice this was taken and this is the one difference in the roman canon now versus you know the traditional way is that the priest after the consecration announces the mystery of faith and then the people respond with uh, uh one of three different formulas let me uh, see bring it up here in my missile um he says the mystery of faith and the people say we proclaim your death o lord and profess your resurrection until you come again that's the most uh, common one or when we eat this bread and drink this cup we proclaim your death o lord until you come again or save us savior of the world for by your cross and resurrection you have set us free. Now why do we make that acclamation when it wasn't part of the original canon? Talk about that and more when we come back. We'll have lots more New Nonsense Catholic right after this. Okay, welcome back. We're talking about the memorial acclamation in the New Order of the Mass um, and how it was added to the Novus Ordo Missae. It was added to uh, the Roman canon um, and and it didn't originally appear in it. Uh, The priest says uh, the mystery of faith and then the people respond. And apologists for the Novus Ordo explain why it was inserted this way. They say that, um, um, you know, instead of being addressed to the Father, uh, by the priest in persona Christi, as the entirety of the Eucharistic prayer is, um, in, in keeping with popular devotion or the, mo- the spontaneous movement of popular devotion, this prayer was added for the people praying not to the Father but to Christ. So, in other words, you know uh, th- those private prayers, the personal prayers that people would say at the elevation, they now made communal and liturgical and and, and public, if you will. So instead of saying a a personal prayer, they they have the congregation praying together. Now, I I bring this up for two reasons. Uh, Foremost is that after the corrected translation, you you may have noticed when we read off the memorial acclamations that that one was conspicuously absent. More often than not, prior to uh, 2010, at the memorial acclamation, you would have said, Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again. But that is no longer included. And why? Was it a mistranslation? No, it wasn't a mistranslation. Is it addressed to, it's not even addressed to Christ or the Father. It it seems to be addressed to us that we're just affirming this this reality. Uh, It's not actually part of the prayer at all. It was made up out of whole cloth by the commission for the English liturgy. And so it was dropped as being, you know, uh, technically an abuse because it wasn't part of the prayer in the first place. And that's something else that Sacramentum says very explicitly. It is not to be tolerated that priests take upon themselves the right to compose their own Eucharistic prayers or to change the approved texts. Okay? And Eucharistic prayer is to be recited by the priest alone. Okay. Um, I wanted to bring up a, a couple of things now in the communion rite. And this is important. And the first thing I'm going to bring up, uh, talking about abuses, is uh, extraordinary ministers of the Holy Eucharist. Okay. Now, no, I'm, I apologize. That was the thing I'm trying to correct. They are extraordinary ministers of Holy Communion. No layperson is a Eucharistic minister, and that language is forbidden. It is not to be employed. Okay. And and this is it's very sp- specifically put out uh, uh, in in the. Uh, document that they are extraordinary ministers of holy communion and that only the ordained are ministers of the eucharist okay and so this is and also that the use of extraordinary ministers is a matter of necessity and it says in the in the general instruction that only if other ministers are not available so in other words if, if you see the priest sitting down while lay people are giving out communion that's an abuse and if there's, it's only if they're not available. And if uh, the, the, the lack of ministers would be an undue burden, it would be a hardship. So in other words, just the fact that communion takes a little longer because there's only one priest is not a legitimate reason to use extraordinary ministers of Holy Communion. Now, obviously, <laughs> it was much easier to change the translation, you know, to correct the English translation, Uh, back in 2010, than it is to get people to change the habits of 50 years. But if the Pope is really serious about putting an end to liturgical abuse, then I think we need to get serious uh, about this. Recourse to the assistance of extraordinary ministers in the celebration of liturgy is not intended for, quote-unquote, fuller participation of the laity, but should only be out of true necessity. And that's the thing, there's lots of people who, oh, yes, I, I'm a Eucharistic minister, that's my, that's my ministry, that's my calling. It's like, I'm sorry, but no, it's not. Okay, um, what else? A couple of other things, uh, the Lord's Prayer, uh, moving on to the communion rite, uh, which begins with the Lord's Prayer. And, uh, and this is a pet peeve of mine. So many times you see people at the Lord's Prayer, and they're holding their hands up like the priest, or when the priest uh, addresses the congregation, he holds up his hands and says, the Lord be with you. And people hold their hands up and say, and, and with your spirit. Uh, a, a week ago, I was at a daily mass <clears throat> and it was a mass with, for the uh, school children, the first and second graders. <clears throat> Pardon me, and the, little, and the teachers were there with their little charges. And uh, when the priest says, the Lord be with you, they're saying, you know, hold up your hands, hold up your hands. Instructing them to do it, okay? Um, that is not a liturgical posture for laity. Only the priest Holds the Orans position because it is symbolic of him praying on behalf of the congregation, which he can do because he's in persona Christi. He's the priest; he can pray for the whole congregation. We're just representing ourselves when we respond to the priest. Each one of us is just, you know, Joe Bob Catholic, and also with you, right? And with your spirit finally corrected, we respond to to his greetings. Uh, All right, and you don't hold your and you don't hold your hands up at the Our Father either because. Imitating the priest, clericalization of the laity forbidden in this document. Okay, that's one of the things it's meant to correct. The sign of peace. Pax Domini sit semper vobiscum. The peace of the Lord be with you all. That is the prescribed prayer, and that's pretty much where it ends. The sign of peace in the old traditional rite was sometimes given amongst the ministers at a solemn high mass. But uh, at regular Mass, there is no, and and it was never a matter of of, uh, stop and and shake hands with your neighbor, okay? Now, obviously, the sign of peace is part of the uh, um, Novus Ordo Mise, but it's it's optional, okay? It's not an integral part of the Mass. It was something that was tacked on, and priests do not have to do it. As we've noticed, of course, you know, uh, uh, in lots of places, they stopped doing it because of COVID, all right? Uh, you know, they don't want people You don't want people shaking hands And, and kissing each other And spreading their germs around uh, And so uh, some places, you know They they say, well, just bow to your neighbor But even now, you know So you're wearing a mask Don't breathe on anybody uh, and, and so they've um, just fallen out of uh, doing it Which, in my opinion, is a good thing Because it really doesn't belong there and, and Pope Benedict even said If we really have to do that Can we move it to some other part of the Mass Because it is, this is not a, a time to to stop and say howdy to your neighbor. Okay, um, then also the the Lamb of God, which is um, one of the few places uh, that you might encounter Latin in a typical Novus Ordo Mass. For whatever reason, uh, the Sanctus and the and the Agnus Dei, the Lamb of God, are the places where where regular parishes will use Latin. More power to them. Uh, may their tribe increase. But I bring it up simply because. Um, that prayer is recited or sung, chanted preferably, uh, at the time when they're preparing for the distribution of communion. And of course now with, with uh, you know, communion under both kinds and, and several ministers, uh, that can take a minute. And so it is allowed to continue the prayer. The Anus Day is Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, have mercy on us. Lamb of God, you take away the sins of the world. Have mercy on us. Lamb of God, you take away the sins of the world. Grant us peace. All right? That's the prayer. Threefold on you stay, have to do the, the three repetitions with grant us peace at the end of the last one. But they said in Redemptionis Sacramentum, you may do it, uh, the, the first two lines, you can repeat them if uh, you know, it is considered uh, um, appropriate. Right now, personally, it's a prayer. It's not background music for the preparation of the Saboria. Uh, so, personally, I think it's it's silly to to you know just continue doing it like we can't have two seconds of silence during the mass. But it is allowed. What is not allowed is the addition of tropes. You can't change the prayers. And you know the uh, one that's very typical is where they add. Well, first off, they add the word Jesus to the prayer. Jesus, Lamb of God you take away the sins of the world, have mercy on us, okay? That's fine. That's twice and then grant us peace at the end. But they've added, some places have added tropes. Jesus, bread of life, or Jesus, Lord of all. No, that is that is an abuse that is not allowed. Now, what's the point even of, of bringing all these things up? Well, the important thing, and, and um, I, I do suggest that you take a look at Redemptionis Sacramentum, it's available online, and you can see very, very, you know, plain language what is and isn't allowed or what what are abuses and need to be corrected, okay? And you'll also discover that it it tells you that any Catholic has the right to lodge a complaint regarding liturgical abuse to the diocesan bishop, all right, and I would start with the pastor, but to the diocesan bishop, it says, or the competent ordinary equivalent to him in law, right, so a, a... prior or an abbot or whatever. Or to the Apostolic See on account of the primacy of the Roman pontiff. Right? So you can go to the Apostolic, you can go to the Papal Nuncio and say, you know, take this to the Pope. I'm sick and tired. But naturally it says, it is fitting, insofar as is possible, that the or complaint be submitted first to the Diocesan Bishop, and this is naturally to be done in truth and in charity. As St. Augustine said, in Essentials Unity, In non-essentials, liberty, in all things, charity. That's the important thing, the most important thing to remember, um, in in my opinion. All right. So all of these things um, really kind of conspire to... uh, The correction of these things, let me put it this way, conspires to make our experience of the Mass more meaningful... More reverent, more pleasing to God. All right, this is important to me. Some people, and 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 I, I will admit, sometimes I'm I'm kind of glib when I'm when I'm uh, uh, talking about liturgical abuses. But one of the reasons it's because for me personally, that's a defense mechanism. Liturgical abuse, you know, if I if I when I think about it, it either I would either want to cry or it would be, make me, um, you know, in the words of Ed Anger, pig biting mad. Because it is serious. This is, this is that place where heaven touches earth. This is that place where Christ becomes truly present. And, and we're there. We're, we're present at the sacrifice of Calvary. Calvary. And this is a, a solemn and important moment in the lives of, of the Catholic faithful. And it deserves the respect and reverence it is due. And I'm going to tell you right now, I don't care who you are, Respect and reverence is not rigidity. It is fitting and proper. Dinium et est. it is right and just. And that is no nonsense. Hey, uh, in our final moment here, I just want to remind you that this uh, weekend, this Saturday, is our Uh, St. Joseph Women's Conference here at the Sacred Heart Chapel. You can still register. Uh, We'd love to have you there. Also, you can find out all about it on vmpr.org, on our website. Also, in October, I am going to be joined by our own Terry Barber, and the two of us are going to be doing a Marian conference. It's all Mary, and that's happening also at the Sacred Heart Chapel in October. So um, we're going to have the flyer up in the next uh, 48 hours or so, I hope. And uh, you'll be able to go to vmpr.org and find out all about it. But I'll continue continue to remind you as we go forward. Uh, next week, going to talk a little bit more about uh, the Holy Mass, the New Order of the Mass, and how best, or uh, perhaps I can say how uh, it can be better celebrated in ways that are easy to accomplish. Until then, may God richly bless you and your family. In the 1990s, I lived and worked in Hollywood. But when my wife Betty's mom took ill, we relocated to Orange County. And it was during this time in our lives that I converted to Catholicism. Once my eyes were open to the truth, I couldn't learn enough about the faith. But I had less free time than ever, especially with a long commute. That's when I discovered the real value of Catholic audio. Listening to cassette tapes transformed my daily commute into a miniature retreat, And that's the beauty of Virgin Most Powerful Radio today. Since the podcasts are archived, you can listen anytime on our smartphone app. I know how listening to Catholic audio can bring you closer to Christ and His Church. So I encourage you to visit the App Store or go to vmpr.org and download the app today. It just might change your life. I'm Matthew Arnold for Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Virgin Most Powerful Radio, sharing the gospel with clarity and charity. The glorious mysteries of the most.